Welcome to the spoiler cast for Rehydrate. This episode will contain spoilers for all of the three-body problem, the dark forest, and death's end. If you don't want to be spoiled on future events, please skip this episode. This is Season 3, Episode 1, The Wall Facers, where we will be reading the first half of Part 1 of The Dark Forest by Liu Xixin. My name is Amin, and I have only read up to the point at which uh, the podcast is. Hi, I'm Dan. I've read the entire series a bunch of times. And my name is Talia. I was on one episode before because I have read all of the three body books and I have not read any of the Ball Lightning or any other works by Tsushin Liu. So Talia is the newest co-host of the Spoiler Cast. So do you want to say a little bit more about yourself, your background, anything that the listeners might find interesting? Yeah, um, I would definitely like to reach out to people who have read this remarkable series because I think it does unite an unlikely uh, group of people, people who don't consider themselves science fiction or don't consider themselves people who participate in Chinese cultural exports still unites them because it's a remarkable work of fiction. And I studied a little bit of Chinese and that reawakened me to try a Chinese um, novel when I came back to the States fleeing this COVID pandemic, which gave me a lot of time to read. I also, like Dan, was able to listen to this in an audio format because we both have long commutes, and that is a, a good format to listen to a number of books. But I definitely would also recommend the experience of purchasing or borrowing this book in some kind of printed format. Do you read in Mandarin, I guess, or Cantonese as well? Um, well, the, fortunately, with written Chinese, it doesn't matter uh, which dialect oh. <laughs> you read. Um, you're very fortunate to be able to just, yeah, just be Chinese able to read the character. That's right, <laughs> and uh, you can spoil you can spoil many thousands of years of Chinese. I think there's a little peek into you know Earth's past, and at least for Chinese, that it can be quite a conservative past because as of a thousand maybe two thousand years ago we're using characters in modern days that are almost identical to characters that they used back then so very easy to spoil a lot and you'll see that he makes a lot of references to confucius and mencius and these thinkers from like 200 bce um who are known as common knowledge and i don't know dan do you remember the great english poets and generals from well even like 200 years ago generals i guess uh i mean like we had like the civil war like 200 years ago right so we'd have like lee and yeah Grant, i think so all those people so i guess so <laughs> i'm just saying i couldn't really quote them um, oh no i were asked <laughs> quote lincoln i guess <laughs> we had to re- memorize it for history class history is looming very presently over chinese language and culture and so mm-hmm. i think it's pretty apt that it would loom so large in this you know work of fiction so getting into the into the book a little bit, like one thing, uh, and since you you have uh, read the the series in Chinese and and know you know know how to read it, um, uh, the one thing I noticed like in the beginning of this chapter is that all the surnames of people, all the old three old guys, are names of people we've met met before. Um, so we have uh, Zhang Yuan Chao, who is the the old guy who gets scammed, um, who has the same surname as Zhang Beihai, but I think they're different characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Yang Jingwen, who has the same surname as Yang Dong, with the actually same uh, same character, and then you have Miao Fuchuan, and uh, who has the same 
his surname is the same as, as the first name is Wang Miao. So I don't know. Like, did you catch that when you when you were reading it? Does that do you think that holds any significance? I'm not sure that it does. I would love it to hold some significance, but it, they're such common surnames. Um, oh, there is one uncommon surname, and that's the commander in the third book who ends up giving over controls to Zhang Beihai, the commissar you mentioned before. And she, her name is Dongyang Yuanchu, I think. And oh, that yeah. just was memorable to me because it's a four character name, which is slightly more unusual. Um, yeah. Most everyone has three names. But Zhang, I mean, I, I know 25 people named Zhang. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because when, when I first read it, I, I guess like I had in the impression that they were just related because like they had similar names anyway. And then I'm, like as I was reading it again, I was like, oh, I don't think they're actually related at all. <laughs> and like this is interesting that they have very similar names there. But yeah, that might be worthy of a footnote just to an Anglophone audience. Just like don't pay attention or don't pay undue attention to similar names. Because I know like I'm named Talia and Amin has a long last name. If we met someone who's like the name, the first same first and last name, we would definitely take pause. But in Chinese, it's not really as significant. I mean, they still play with names. You see when, uh, which actually happens in the first hundred pages that we read for today, we meet this woman named Zhuang Yan. Mm-hmm. And hearing her name out loud, he makes like a pun about her name and says like, oh, is it not dignified? And she corrects him like my name, Yan, is not the Yan that means dignified. It's the one that means color. Right, so there's still right. like play with names. Yeah, actually, I think Amin, that, that's actually in the second chapter. So Amin hasn't got to that part yet, but I would like to talk about it <laughs> uh, because I did mention in the main show that like, one of my least favorite parts of the entire series is like Luaji's imaginary girlfriend stuff. And so, I mean, I think I mentioned in the show that it actually gets a lot worse. And so the next chapter is when it gets a lot worse. <laughs> so Luaji makes Dasher look for a girl who matches the description of his imaginary girlfriend. And Dasher, because he's awesome, is able to find one. And so it's it's really kind of just embarrassing. I don't know, like the, the whole thing just like has like this really creepy vibe. I'm kind of not looking forward to it <laughs> for the next episode. And but I think like the good part is that it, after the next episode, it kind of it's kind of over. Like we're done with it. Like she shows up, she's around, and like she gets used as like a because like I, I'm sure you've seen so far the low G has like he's like a kind of like a really kind of lazy attitude and like he's kind of nonchalant and like he's not super high, super focused, right? So. The because he's named the fourth wall facer, he kind of leans into that persona even more. And so eventually the UN says, hey, we're going to take away your wife and your child. And you mentioned he marries her. Uh, he's gonna, we're going to take away your wife and your child if you don't get going. And so they actually do take her away eventually. So anyway, um, th- that that that's who that that is. I mean, <laughs> so so does he also get his fancy house in the woods and all that other stuff that he asked for he does yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. he lives like an emperor yeah <laughs> it, with, th- with with his imaginary but real girlfriend yeah yeah it's actually pretty funny like uh i was just reading the the next set of chapters uh, yesterday um just to get ready for the <laughs> next episode and like there, there's this one scene where you know, he um he he sees on the news where they found like this cask of wine at the bottom of the ocean uh, off of like South Africa or something, and he's like, I need that. I really want to eat, drink that. And they're like, that's gonna be really expensive. But he's like, it's part of the plan. <laughs> you need to get it for me. <laughs> and so they do, and, and then he gets sick because it's like it's uh it, like reactive with the brass or something, and the and the cask, and he gets really sick from it. And like the the guy is like, mm-hmm. 
So I do want to say that I we discussed on the main show how we were like disappointed with the way that um, Zhuang Yan, that this woman, this imaginary girlfriend is dealt with. Um, I will say in doing the rereading for today, I actually saw a way out, a little bit of hope. I don't know if I should tease that anymore, um, okay, but I think it's it. not totally a lost cause. Okay. Um, I do think that we our first glimpse into like her personality, which is also kind of the last glimpse, is that she is a painter. She paints in the traditional fashion. Yeah. And of course, if you're growing up in Asia, it's traditional paintings, it's normal, and then it's Western. So there's like normal mm. paintings and then there's the paintings that we all saw in textbooks and maybe even museums. And she draws particular attention to like, you know, the space between speaks louder than the actual paintings. Um, so the space between mountains. And that seems to be also the way that Zhang Beihai communicates with his dad, that all the crucial information is passing in the part that is invisible to Sofans or invisible to like the untrained eye. Mm. Interesting. So I thought with a bit of a rewrite, her character, if this were ever adapted, could be some kind of uh, way to maybe steer humanity into a more hopeful place or at least be more than just a dream lover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also remember you know, in the, in the next chapter that comes up, he's talking to her about how her perspective, like she, she says something like, well, you know, could we maybe just live together and like, maybe just give them a plot of land and like, maybe just like live in harmony. And then uh, Lord G is like, you know, Sofan's heard you say that, <laughs> like, but unfortunately, like not a lot of people like believe in that, but like, she could have also had like, you know, that kind of maybe the same, it's kind of the same vein as uh, Chung Xin later on, who has like really optimistic attitude. Like maybe she could have been the person that like that helped humanity in that kind of way, you know? Um, yeah, mm. but she, she doesn't, you know, she just. Suffice to say she does not as it's currently written. Maybe like, uh, you know, similarly how they, they combine um, or like they could combine the uh, Lua Ji and, and Wang Mi off the TV show. Maybe they can combine uh, Zhang Yuan and, uh, and Chung Xin somehow. To make them, I don't know, to give the character a little bit more meat, right? Like, because Mom Meow has basically no character, and yeah, Zhang Yan has very little character. So yeah, maybe they can expand them and, and combine them. That actually reminds me, um, I mean, so I think I mentioned this before, but we're done with Wang Meow. Like, he, he just never shows up. Like, Dasher mentions him, I think, a couple times in this book is like his passing. I think he's like, I'm, a, I'm a, I remember this one genius I used to work with, whatever. But like, that's, that's the only thing. Like, does that, does that bother you that we're, that we're just done with the story? No, I don't think it bothers me necessarily. It seems like we're we're onto a different a different perspective on all of this, so that that doesn't necessarily bother me. What does stay with you from the first book is it story or is it like uh, technology? What um, what carries you from last one to this one? I, I think what stuck with well, probably because it was towards the end of the book. But what stuck with me most is the the Trisolarian perspective of of why why they are coming to earth and what their motivation is more than all the stuff that happened on earth itself. Um, so hmm. that's kind of what's more interesting to me now. And and I think what, the way Dan described it is that this book ends up being more about the, I'll say the societal impacts of that I- impending invasion. So that, that to me seems interesting as well. But from the first book, I didn't really retain a lot of it. Yeah, it's on the level of individuals, not like civilizations yeah. and society. Yeah, definitely. 
yeah, the first book is more like a, a mystery novel, right? Like they're kind of like unraveling the mystery and it turns out to be like a crazy super science-y explanation of like what actually happened. It's like, oh, like I saw the stars flickering because the sofans unfolded into two you know, into two dimensions from 11 dimensions and like, you know, blocked the stars and like, so that's a big exciting. That is ex- funny, actually. It's like the hugest reveal in the first book and then in the second book it's just like oh and then mike evans is walking out on the boat because it looks prettier when they display their text (laughs) against the cosmic background radiation so it's just like an aesthetic throwaway feature by the time we reach the second book (laughs) and and dan maybe i misremembered this but i thought we were done with the three-body game as well but that seemed to have that seems to have crept back into this is that going to play a large role in in this book or are we so we're we're done with it in the in the ways that like it's done as a recruiting tool, right? So like in the first book, it was meant to okay. be a recruiting tool to get people in the ETO. In the second book, it's more like just a safe meeting spot for the ETO for the the for the, re, the remaining remnants of the ETO and eventually the wall breakers. Who they mentioned sort of the wall breakers. I don't know. Did, did you get what the wall breakers are so far? What I understood it to be is that the wall breakers are supposed to figure out what they're going to do about what they're going to do in the next four hundred years before the Trisolarans get here. Sort of. So their their actual job is to like they they basically assign a wall breaker to every wall or mo- to three of the wall facers. And their whole job is to figure out what their secret plans are and then eventually tell Trisolaris to let them know ahead of time. But it also breaks the spirit of the wall break or the wall facers uh, to have their secret plans kind of laid out bare. The and the way they meet up and the way they talk is in the world of three body, uh, just because like it's a it's it's a safe space for for them not to get caught. Yeah. And I mean, we saw that at the end of the first book, when they congregated in person is when they suffered casualties and like had that yeah. had their deaths. So like us, they moved to Zoom meetings and went remote. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and speaking of, of wall facers, I know like, you know, in our main show, we had talked a little about Zhang Beihai and like how he doesn't have much of a character, but actually his character becomes like one of the most interesting ones. And um, mm, yeah. I had heard about this. I didn't put this together when I first read it, but I had heard someone describe him as the fifth wall facer, which I think is a really interesting thing because in the chapters that you've read to me in so far, John Behai is all about like triumphalism, right? He's like saying like, oh, we can, we can do it. You know, he's the only guy who believes that the earth can defeat Trisolaris, right? And so he like does all the stuff to like, convince people that we can we can be trisolaris to show that we can be trisolaris to eventually like he, he hybrids in the future and he totally turns he's actually uh, an escapist and so he like instruments the uh, creation of long-range uh, generational ships and then he eventually like takes it over uh, you know with a bunch of machinations and then flies it into deep space to get away from the trisolarians and let earth he thinks that's the only like really way that the humans can survive is like get away from earth as fast as possible so it's like a big reveal but he never told anybody's mm-hmm. plan so like i guess like as you're reading it just like kind of watch out for like him being like overly exuberant about his his triumphalism <laughs> well, i think it. it's like very effectively showing us um someone acting strategically and testing yeah. us just like we're trying to test trisolaris saying like can you see even though it's not being presented to you why is this person so interested? Is it to raise the troops of the morale, like he says, to say like, hey, we still have lots we haven't explored under our current theory. 
Like, yeah. how about ecological cycling systems? So theoretically, someone could just get out of Dodge right. and live forever inside their ship. <laughs> Let's pour some money into that. <laughs> I right. mean, it's not that clear. And he's the only um, one who wants to do the high tech. Uh, you know, they, they kind of break it up to the low tech, mid tech and high tech. And he's like, I'm the only one who wants to deal with the high tech. That's the only way we can defeat them, <laughs> quote unquote, defeat them. <laughs> I'm reading it more carefully, like the last couple of times I read it, you know, like to look for clues of him um, kind of making that that turn. You know, he seems kind of like a generic military character right now because it's all about like, yeah, we can do it. You know, the humans can do it. So just pay attention to that as you're as you're reading it. And it becomes, I think, I think pretty rewarding story. And it, it's really surprising, too, when it happens, because like, yeah, he takes over the ship and like that, that whole part. Is, it, it's kind of confusing, but it's also really good. <laughs> And he also is maybe more impressive than the wall breakers by themselves because they were granted these special titles and he has like maneuvered the politics to give himself this power and at every turn is operating to shield himself from the kind of scrutiny that he's looking out for. Like he does a very public like firing of someone if you're in what you expect to be a normal meeting and the person next to you gets like publicly shamed and fired. Right. You might be more worrying about your own job security than like the intentions of the person who, you know, selected someone. So he, I think, deserves even more credit because he is not granted any special um, resources. I mean, it, it seems like it would be bad in a normal setting, especially bad in a military setting uh, to kind of go over, you know, go around the chain of command. And I think uh, Waste says afterwards, like, <laughs> hey, you, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, like next time, let's let's go through the normal commands. And I don't know if like the Chinese military is even more stringent about those kind of things, because I know like in you know Chinese culture, it's all about like, you know, saving face and that kind of thing. So I'd imagine that's even more mm. pervasive in a military setting. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not very uh, filial. Confucius teaches that we owe the greatest um, like loyalty and greatest service to those close to us. So mm. Confucius actually advocates for, you know, if your father stole a sheep, maybe don't snitch on him because you owe more loyalty to your father than you do to the command. So it would violate a lot, <laughs> especially, yeah. I mean, I know nothing about military command, but I imagine that they're quite strict. Um, yeah, so also, as I was reading through these chapters, I, I was kind of also thought it'd be interesting to kind of take notes of like kind of the foreshadowing stuff that comes up. And so the, one of the things actually reminded me as you're as you were talking, Talia, was about the painting. And so I don't know if that's foreshadowing eventually the, the two-dimensional attack where they where, where uh, Sishin Leo uh, talks a lot about um, how the, the, the earth or the, the solar system looks like a painting. Like maybe that's that's more foreshadowing there. And then, you know, there's also the the fairy tales, there's a lot of talk of, of paintings there. So that's kind of a recurring theme um, that I'm trying to, I'm, I'm catching, I'm catching now as I'm reading through. Yeah, likewise, just because you tipped me off, I was looking for more foreshadowing. And if you want to open, I'm on page 99. And I was reading about our first trip to the UN. And I'll read, um, the administration of this Filipino politician had straddled the pre and post crisis eras. If the vote had come just a little bit earlier, she never would have been elected because a refined Asian lady just didn't project the sense of power the world was looking for in the face of a tricellar crisis. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So not too much, but we'll get more perspective on, you know, what a refined Asian lady means <laughs> to different eras of humanity. Yeah. And so uh, for, for Amin and for other people who maybe don't care about spoilers, uh, the the idea there is that uh, the character the third character in Dark Fo- I'm sorry in Desen the main the main character is a woman named Chengxin who kind of not very 
not very powerful. I get like, not every, you know, there's like a, there's a dynamic between her and this other guy named Wade. Wade is like really like militaristic and like hardline where Chung Shin is like more like optimistic and, and trusting. And so I think like this is also kind of foreshadowing that where. Yeah. I mean, there's like her actual virtues and like how she feels about humanity, but it's also like how she looks to the outside when they're aware of the politics, like, you know, she looks like right. a young um, person, especially when people start living past a hundred, like a woman in her thirties. I mean, if you've ever listened to your grandparents or even your parents, they'd be like, you know, just don't trust anyone under 40 now. Like, um, it definitely presents humanity as like almost an idealized version of itself. Mm. To have like a young, beautiful woman representing them. And yeah, some very strong, uh, minorities of the population will never accept that and go in the direction of thomas wade uh, another thing i noticed was there's a lot of mention of goldfish for some reason in the first couple of chapters <laughs> here like the i think Vlad talks talks about goldfish and there was another mention of them and then of course at the at the very end of the book you know the chung Shin leaves the I, I don't know if it was a goldfish but it was a fish in a bowl right like in the pocket universe so i don't know if there's like, give one to the ring <laughs> yeah yeah i wonder like is there any more significance to goldfish in Chinese culture that I'm not, ca- not, not, I'm not catching or is it really maybe a foreshadowing or just a coincidence? Hmm. I don't see it as particularly Chinese, but um, I mean, what would be your first impressions? If I were to tell you about like a goldfish in a bowl, what would that bring to mind? Uh, I would think that it's a metaphor for someone being trapped. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're clearly thinking like someone who's had to like decode poetry on like maybe a high level. Um, I'm thinking like really basic, um, like you see them in dentist's office and you can see them. And that's a really big point. Like they're com- they can't really hide. They're completely mm-hmm. transparent. They're in a glass bowl, um, completely naked. And that's definitely a theme that comes up about humanity, about naive civilizations, about the thoughts of Trisolarans that there's some element about like being completely exposed. Oh yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause the, I think pr- probably shortly after that, it's start talking. That's when the, the second wall breaker has this conversation with the Sophons where they talk about like where they can't, the, their inability to deceive and the, how they communicate their thoughts. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. Could be a metaphor for that. So yeah, that was my perspective on goldfish. Um, like you said, I definitely noticed them a lot more rereading. And as we come to find out, maybe goldfish actually outlive, you know, humankind in this universe. Right. <laughs> the The last thing I, I noticed, well, not even noticed, but um, I wanted to bring up is, you know, I talked about the cosmics, uh, the axioms that uh, Yo and Jia had brought up to Luigi in the beginning. And then, I mean, you had said like, oh, maybe I'm trying to, maybe Dan Me is trying to bring that to be more important <laughs> uh, about the um, the total matter of the universe. Um, and so the, the cosmic axioms uh, mention that there's only a finite amount of uh, matter in the universe, right? Um, and so that becomes really important later on, especially at the at the very end, when basically it's hard to explain what <laughs> why it's important. But the idea is that like the universe is eventually going to reset because like there's two theories of what, what's happened to the universe, right? Is it it's, the first the first theory is that it's, it's continually expand, right? And it's going to die heat death, mm-hmm. um, heat death, yeah. yeah. And so the second. The second one is that it's going to eventually collapse on itself and do another big bang and then it'll reset. Right. And so 
in the very end of the book, this is, it's going to sound crazy, but what they do is they build these pocket universes um, and they stay in there and they take a bunch of material, like tons and tons of material to like build houses and whatever. Uh, and then there's a group called the returners who say, you actually need to get rid of these pocket universes because they're outside of the normal universe and the world and the universe won't be able to reset unless it has the amount of material that it needs, you know, it had, it can't even lose an atom out of, out of the, the total matter of the universe or else it won't reset. Can I uh, spoil another book? I sure. mean, have all spoilers been announced? All spoilers. Um, one of, okay. Uh, one of uh, Tsushin Liu's um, influences was the writings of Isaac Asimov. We even see Asimov in this book. I mean, in the first hundred pages, yeah. Or maybe a little bit afterwards. Basically, um, one of the wallfacers has occasion to visit Al Qaeda and gives them a copy of these Asimov books, and there's some significance there. But just as another writer of hard science fiction, he Asimov also had to think about different possible universe ends or beginnings, and one that he theorizes explains a change since I know that we used to think that the universe would contract and now we believe in heat death. And I think in the world of the books that is also overturned and it was like, Oh, the amount of dark matter has been underestimated. So actually it will contract either way. We've had a lot of different theories and some of them involve change and some of them involve different measurement. And Asimov suggested that there was another parallel universe that had a different strong nuclear force. And that meant that the fusion on that um, universe was not like very powerful, meaning it wasn't very warm or very subject to life. And I think that also might explain how the world might look different 15 billion years in the future. Like if we've been taking mass out of the universe to hide in these pocket universes, it actually could look like the laws of the universe change. So how, how did that, did, did they show in the, or do they talk about like exactly how it changes? Like, is there like, like on the ground perspective of like how that, how that manifests? Um, in the Asimov books? Yeah. Oh, um, they're called the gods themselves and they're definitely worth a read, but it's, I believe seen in the difference in the amount of energy that the sun puts out. Hmm. And that's, that change is attributed to uh, siphoning some strong nuclear force from this other universe which then of course has disastrous effects on the universe that's being stolen from even though hiding in a pocket universe seems like a perfect safe place it's actually damaging the original place it came from i mean have you read those i have not those are new to me i've, I've read other asimov but not that yeah i've always meant to like it's obviously like a common citation of of Lucian's, uh you know influences uh, you know him and, and clark i've always meant to read it but it's never I don't know. I, I haven't yet. <laughs> yeah, it's like it would be backpedaling. It's not maybe as fun and it's not as grand mm. as these books. Uh, but they have like a crisis uh, and there's like a post-crisis version of humanity. And interestingly, it's also divided into a couple different parts. And you're just like reading this seemingly completely normal human story for the first third. And you're like, where is this? weird little novel going and then like Amin was saying the last part of three body we jump in and suddenly like without traveling there we're just in trisolaris um in media res and that's what happens in the gods themselves it's just suddenly we're a left and you're like what's a left and then we meet a mid and then a right 
and mm. we understand that this is a completely different society and operating under different laws of a different universe that like reproduces in a way that's very similar to how we find out Trisolarans reproduce. So there's definitely some like Asanoff's fingerprints are all over Sushin <laughs> Liu's work. Wait, how do Trisolarans reproduce? I'm I either missed or forgot that. I'm gonna go with forgot. <laughs> uh, I think it'd be easy to forget. They're like very cagey. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember Dan? I sort of remember. It was more about the family structure, right? It was. Uh, I forget when they actually mentioned it. It was. I don't remember offhand, but it's not a big deal, right? Like it's. So basically, we see. They think our family structure is weird. They do. Uh, yeah. We see this one like person watching the post, this Trisolaran, who is telling us that no one will reproduce with him. And the way that their reproduction happens is that two adults will sort of melt together and that will produce some offspring that emerge with some memories from both sides. So yeah. if that's your conception on childhood, you know, maybe that looks a little bit different because we come into the world with like, you know, no memories, <laughs> no abilities. Yeah, I remember that now. That the in the listener chapters from the the last book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so as we're talking about the the end of Death's End, I, you know, I had been talking to somebody else about that. There's a different thread on Reddit. I was talking to somebody. How do you feel about the end of of Death's End? Do you see it as like a happy ending, as an optimistic ending, as like maybe a sad ending? Like I, I guess like I, I guess I only read it one way, and I was just wondering like you know how you you took it. How did how did you read it? I read it as an optimistic ending. You know, I, I read it as, you know, like Chengxing goes out um, and then they're kind of ex- going to explore the universe, right? They find an exit on a planet that's kind of habitable um, and, you know, habitable enough anyway. And they take their ship out and they're going to go explore until the end of their days. They're not going to see the universe reset. Uh, they don't even know if the universe is going to reset. They're going to hope that enough people returned enough matter to the universe to make, to allow it to reset. But they don't know. Right. But like that can happen probably billions of years in the future, you know, from their future. Right. But they're going to like take the time mm. rather than like hiding out in their packing universe for forever. They're going to kind of go out and explore and like, you know, take take the take the chance. And so th- I saw it as more optimistic and, and hopeful in that way. So mm-hmm. I was just wondering if like other people thought it that way, too. I, I, yeah, I didn't even consider that that wasn't <laughs> until some other people, other people were saying like like different stuff. So I wonder like how you took it. Um, I'm assuming that's directed at me if Amin has not no. uh, read it yet. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. So no, <laughs> I'm so glad you're here, Amin. Um, I mean, I think it was sort of inevitable. It took me, I'm embarrassed to say, like two rereads to actually connect the person at the end of Death's End to the explorer on Gravity who talks about having claustrophobia. I didn't realize that was the same person until my reread. Everyone else should. Um, <laughs> but it seems inevitable because when we meet this first character, Guan Yi Fen, he is the only one who's like really brave about going into the fourth dimension where it's a very dangerous place for three-dimensional creatures to be at all. And so he shows the same like courage and exploring the universe rather than the safety. And we also see that like he didn't go to the black domain world three to live in perfect safety he chose to like stay outside and be adventurous and as for chung shin aa's last words to her were like you know lifetime shouldn't be about waiting and the life in a pocket universe would just be waiting forever Hmm. so pretty inevitable is how i read it 
yeah, I'm surprised like other people maybe didn't take it as a as a happy ending or, you know, like it seemed like there was some confusion around, you know, that she eventually sees the 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 world, you know, the universe kind of go back to the collapsing on itself. And I don't think that's that's what happens at all. I think she's just like because like, who knows when that's going to happen? Right. Like that. Oh, yeah. Who know- <laughs> I definitely didn't read it like that. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but I think it's just like Sushin Liu. I think we agree, seems to present these two views of humanity. And one of them is like dignity and love, even if it costs you your life, because there may be things greater than life. And then there's another way, which is like pure rationality and the best technology and being really scrappy and really shrewd Mm. and persisting, even when things are illegal and the odds are against you. And he sort of, I think, tips towards like the first one, towards love. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because what else would lead you if you're Zhang Beihai to <laughs> set out into space? Like, there's no promise, there's no guarantee. And maybe the shrewd version of that is to say, like, I'll stay on Earth and just be a slave and then organize a slave rebellion. But he chose freedom, even if it cost everything. Right. Yeah, I was also thinking as I was like talking on that that thread about like what would happen if Wade had become the the sword holder at the end, and like if he had been the one that escaped me the lightspeed ships, you know, what would he have done? Like he, I I don't know. Like he definitely wouldn't have returned his his matter from his pocket universe. I think. Yeah, I think that he would have been part of one of those like interstellar battles that we're hearing right. about. Yeah, like <laughs> one side was the tri- Trisolarian fleet number two. Yeah. I think he probably would have like gotten some enemies, to be honest. Yeah, he would have gone. I, I was thinking like, yeah, he'd go around and like you know take over other pocket universes, right, and like steal their matter and like, yeah, right? together or something. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. Uh, so, so I mean, like, I, I know this is a lot of information that you're not familiar with, but Wade, like I mentioned before, is the kind of the polar opposite of the main character in uh, in, in the third character in the third book. And he's, yeah, very hardliner, very militaristic. Chung Sheen gets this big gift. She gets a star. And, you know, people are congratulating her on this gift. And he's the first one to say, like, what's the point of that? It's like, <laughs> it's just a piece of paper. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, did you have any, I mean, like, I know this is a lot of new information thrown at you. Um, you know, the beginning of Dark Forest is very it, expansive, I guess. Like, there's a lot of new characters, a lot of new things. Uh, you know, we have the wall facer stuff, you know, thrown at you. We have the the new, the remnants of the ETO. Um, I, I guess, are there any other, are there things that, like, really aren't gelling for you yet that you like more information about no not yet i'm sure more questions will come up about the wall facers so so do do the wall facers do they ever interact with each other or are they all off doing their own separate things they, they do talk to each other mostly it seems that they have like pdc meetings uh, the planetary defense council meetings and they they kind of criticize each other's plans be like ah oh, that plan's not gonna work mm-hmm. you know <laughs> eventually none of the plans do work except for I mean, Luigi's plan eventually does work. Uh, he's, he's the only one, but he doesn't even have a plan right now on his head. Uh, yeah, they do talk to each other, but they don't talk to each other about their plans. Although one of them, Fardick Tyler, he has like a plan to have all these like, they call them mosquito ships, like all these like really small ships that are going to attack in a swarm against the Trisolarans. And they are going to all have like these gigantic bombs attached to them. And then he's going to, he was going to share the technology that Ray Diaz is working at. Ray Diaz is, initial plan is like i'm gonna make this gigantic bomb <laughs> and so like he's saying i'm gonna use that technology to put those put some of those bombs on these ships so they they do share a little bit of technology but by and large they're all kind of separate but they do talk to each other 
Yeah, but you can sort of understand, like, from a strategic point of view, that basically they have, like, you know, a lot of access to resources, and it might be dangerous, like, from a strategic perspective, if these people who have, like, the same access are, like, talking a lot. So they do interact, but it's not, like, key to their to their mission. It's a good question, though. Got it. So, so, so my other question was, how, how does he get away with basically, I don't know, uh, messing around while other people are working really hard? Like, <laughs> like what, what accountability does he have? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a contentious point for a while, right? And like, uh, in, like I mentioned earlier, like eventually the, the UN or, or the PDC takes his wife and his child away and says, you need to do something, man. Like it's, <laughs> it's, you're just lounging around this life of luxury with like your imaginary girlfriend and not doing anything. And it, I think his plan initially is to not do anything. Like I think, cause he even says like, screw the wall facers. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stay here and like drink my wine and live in, live in luxury. That's the role of individuals. But also you probably think that he, like his hedonistic lifestyle probably contributes to like the social effects and what happens politically is that the popularity of the wall facers declines um and so with that decline in popularity they also seek to like slowly chip away at the resources that they're able to access so much that when luoji wakes up because he also eventually i think all of the hibernator all of the wall facers end up hibernating when he wakes up the commoner who wakes him up like has no memory because it's just he's not an important enough person so that shows that their popularity in the society has also declined over like the 200 years that he's been sleeping. I think Tyler doesn't, doesn't hibernate, right? Cause he kills oh. himself. Mm. Yeah. Doesn't get the chance. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, in the next couple of chapters, Tyler is going to meet his wall breaker, which is a really cool um, chapter. And he, he kind of like lays mm, his plans bare, you know, like saying like, this is exactly what you're going to do. And I figured it out. <laughs> uh, and so Tyler is like so um, kind of distraught that he kills himself in, yeah, at Billie house <laughs> or, you know, near his house. Just next to his like young daughter and new wife. Right. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, that gets dark. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it gets even well, worse. Yeah. Like... And he's the lucky one. <laughs> he's the lucky one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, Ray Diaz gets like murdered by his own people because like he wants to basically just commit genocide. I don't know if Heinz dies. Does Heinz? He must. I don't well, remember. Well, Heinz gets betrayed by the person closest to him. So isn't that right. a fate worse than death? Yeah, I don't remember if he actually dies. I don't know. If they sh- I don't remember them showing him die. He didn't die in a dramatic way as uh, Diaz, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and Luo Ji has a wonderful death. He's, his death is very like fitting and very poetic. But right. that's much later. Yeah, it happens at the very end of the book with the whole rest of the universe. And, and then, mm-hmm. and then, are they replaced with new wall facers or no? Oh. Like, like Talia yeah, said, yeah, they can't be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah basically, like it, they all kind of jump, or three of them jump into the future, and then like they kind of just forgot about the wall facer. Not forgot, but like they go, uh, they actually like formally declare an end to the wall facer project, being like, "That was dumb. Why did you mm-hmm. guys do that?" <laughs> yeah, if ever there was a chance for them to like be replaced, like you said. Um, I think the first, the first one, Frederick Tyler, sort of takes that opportunity away from the future because he, by committing suicide, basically admits, like, you were right. You guessed it. So mm-hmm. it definitely doesn't endorse this as a good strategic plan um, to pour all these resources into. And, you know, humanity shifts in a different direction. Yeah, they get super arrogant about their their yeah. their odds about weeding the Trisolarans, and then they don't. <laughs> 
Yeah, you'll see like there's a common theme across the entire books where like humanity is arrogance, like at, you know ebbs and flows, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the, it, it's definitely like going up, up, up as as soon as Luigi gets out of hibernation, like humanity's like, oh, it's awesome now. Don't even worry, we 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 can take the Trislarians, no problem. And the Trislarians just like rip them up with like. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. They're like. They're so concerned. It almost reminds us of like how our own political scene like is so focused on like a 24 hour news cycle. They're like all focused on like, should we be really, really strict with our trisolarians or should we allow them like a little plantation or banish them to Mars or outside of the Kuiper Belt? And like none of those are ever come close to being explored because they're just the representation of how arrogant humanity has become. Yeah. <laughs> And it, yeah, it happens a couple more times throughout the the series where yeah. humanity is, is like so up on themselves. I'm like, oh yeah, we got this. It's not, it's, yeah, no problem. No. <laughs> and I think that even extends. And it's the last thing I'll say on that topic, but like even cosmologically, there's like the doctor, the psychologist who's aboard the ship out in deep space, and he's saying, you know, I study, you know, troubled people who lie to me. At least you just study, you know, the natural world and physics which never lies, haha, obviously hard science never lies. And then the people who are like really woke are like, mm, really? Or <laughs> is everything out there also a lie? <laughs> like we shouldn't even be arrogant to the level of basic physics and basic mathematics. I wonder if like Lucian like understands that himself, you know, like what are his point of view is on, on that? Like I wonder if like, because hey, obviously- next, next guest star. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'll come on the podcast anytime now. Uh, he, yeah, Shin, you know, you're open to, I, I'll interview you anytime, no problem. <laughs> I'll set it up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wonder what his, his, I mean, obviously he's writing about all this stuff. So, you know, I'm sure it's much more complicated, but he has a lot of different concepts in his mind. Um, but he also has, you know, uh, you know, a different perspective, you know, coming from, uh, a Chinese background, right? So maybe they have just different perspective than we as Americans would have. And uh, yeah, but we're interested to know like what, how we kind of thinks about our, our part in science. I would guess that he would also consider us like relatively insignificant with this in the scope of, in this, in the real scheme of things and our knowledge be insignificant as well. Yeah. I mean, the last message that tries to learn or the first message that the end of the first book, like the, your bugs, we learned that that is like, not something said to try to intimidate us. That's just like literally exactly how they feel. Right. No sugarcoating. <laughs> yeah, because they they can't they don't know about like yeah insults, right? They just <laughs> they just say what they're, yeah, they're thinking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes it like even scarier. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well uh anything else that you guys want to talk about? Yeah. I mean I think it does like sort of speed up later in the book both in like the pacing and also like, I think the chapters get a little bit shorter, but I think this is a really good entry point because it gets you to like learn about the wall facers and that they exist and how humanity is going to try and face that as a society rather than just like certain individuals. I think this book is also really interesting in that there's a really hard cut in the middle of it when like Lua G jumps 200 years in the future. And like the book is like, it's a super hard cut in the middle of it. Uh, after Basically after part yeah. two, after that, it's like, to- oh, yeah the society is totally different we're all about like being in space and talking about you know more space uh, stuff so it- it's really like kind of two books in one right yeah and i think i don't even need the explanation that they give us like oh here's what the great ravine i'm like nope i get it that's fine just move on i get right. we're in the future oh, i remember like the first time i read about the good when you start talking about the great ravine like that's such an interesting concept like there are like there's like lull in the in um in humanity i feel like you know. that's a that's a prequel 
yeah there's like yeah. a whole story just there yeah i would read it definitely <laughs> you should write it dan yeah. <laughs> you should pitch it to the netflix guys i don't i don't yeah i mean they're already making game of thrones spinoffs so maybe like the the, the three body spinoff will be the great ravine and uh <laughs> and uh, the what's the other one the redemption of time and that kind of stuff yeah tons of tons of good stories but once this becomes the new uh, game of thrones Thanks for listening. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. Please join us next time for Cosmic Brush, where we will be reading the rest of part one of The Dark Forest. Mm-hmm.